Uh, Murray, one small thing. Yeah. When you bring me out, can you introduce me as the podcast? Welcome to the podcast. My name is Ian Castleberry. I'm a writer, editor, and, you guessed it, a podcaster. You can currently find my work at iancastleberry.com, that's C-A-S-S-E-L-B-E-R-R-Y, and through Twitter at Ian Cass. I hope you had a good weekend and your week is off to a pleasant start. Fall might actually be here now. Leaves are changing color and beginning to fall to the ground. Here in western North Carolina, we had temps in the low 70s, even inching down to the high 60s. I wore long sleeves, albeit a t-shirt, for the first time in months. With the blazing September we had, I was worried we'd go from summer right to winter this year. This weather chat has been brought to you by my jeans, which happily came down from my closet shelf over the weekend. Did your weekend include seeing Joker? Judging from the weekend box office grosses, there's a good chance that you did. Joaquin Phoenix's murderous clown showcase earned an astounding $96 million in theaters over the weekend, breaking the record set by last year's Venom. Early October has now become a good time for superhero-related blockbusters, apparently. Or should that be supervillain blockbusters, since we're talking about bad guys in both of those cases? I'm curious to see if those big numbers carry over to next weekend. For one thing, Will Smith's Gemini Man and the animated The Addams Family are opening. One of those movies would figure to be number one, but maybe more people will be curious to see Joker amidst all the buzz. Even a number two or number three finish, depending on the numbers, could be impressive. Or did everybody who wanted to see Joker get out to the theater this past weekend? I've seen quite a few people on social media saying that they're not eager to see it again, even if they like the movie, because it's so dark and bleak. Not the feel-good movie of the fall, to be sure, which makes those box office totals all the more surprising. (laughs) I know we talked about Joker on the last podcast with a review, but since it had such a big opening and most of the sites I read are running reactions and think pieces about the movie, I wanted to get into it a little bit more and hope you're not done with Joker talk yet. One of the takes I've seen that's been popping up a lot is that Joker is redefining the superhero movie, or comic book movie, with its darker R-rated tone. It's an adult, almost indie approach to the material. Views like that make me wonder how many superhero movies the writer has seen. To me, one of the reasons comic book superhero films have been so enduring is that so many different genres can be covered within them. Joker is a character study. The Dark Knight is a crime film. Captain America the Winter Soldier is a spy thriller. Aquaman is an epic fantasy. Guardians of the Galaxy is a space opera or science fiction. Ant-Man is a heist caper. Spider-Man Homecoming and Spider-Man Far From Home are both high school comedies. Some movies, like Wonder Woman and the three Thor films, dabble in several genres, such as fantasy, war, and historical fiction. Just because Joker isn't about a villain who wants to take over the world or comes up with some great scheme doesn't mean it's redefining comic book superhero movies. But if that's how some viewers, writers, and critics are taking it, that's probably not a bad thing. 
As I said in my review, I'm glad this movie was made, even if I didn't like it as much as I thought I might. There should be room for darker, more grounded stories along with the epic spectacles. And there's certainly a place for standalone movies that don't try to set up a larger story or universe. Though with Joker's success, there may very well be a sequel. And if so, Todd Phillips and Joaquin Phoenix may end up stepping into the territory they tried so hard to avoid. What Joker's success probably says is people wanted something different. It's one reason the Deadpool movies did so well. They broke the supposed constraints of the format and pushed the boundaries of wacky violence and dark comedy. Joker isn't really quite as different. We've seen movies like this before, but not featuring a villain most associate with being Batman's archenemy. Maybe he's just that popular a character, or anything associated with Batman is. It's not fair to criticize a movie for not telling the story you wanted. Though if that's not why you liked a movie, hey, it's your opinion. But a movie really should be judged on its own merits, on whether or not it accomplished what it tried to do. Yet, the more I think about it, I wonder if Joker would have been more interesting if it had been more wacky or warped. Todd Phillips chose to tell the story of a man struggling with mental illness who was abused and didn't get the help he needed and has the misfortune of living in a callous, unsympathetic society that's become incredibly angry. There's not really a reason for Arthur Fleck to dress up like a clown when he rejects the society that's beaten him down and embraces his homicidal side, other than he worked as a clown for hire and his mother told him he was meant to spread joy and laughter. And his clown face ends up becoming the avatar for the resentment, the revolution against the rich and elite in Gotham City. Maybe his new persona is meant to mock that. I'm not saying it would have been a better movie, but I'm just curious as a writer. What if Phillips and Phoenix had explored Fleck's failings as a comedian and desire for stardom a bit more? When I heard Mark Marin had been cast in Joker, my first thought was, oh, he's probably a stand-up comedian who Arthur encounters on the scene. In reality, Marin's barely in the movie, though that's not my point here. And finally, an award thinks they could do my job. Check out this guy. When I was a little boy and told people I was going to be a comedian, everyone laughed at me. Well, no one's laughing now. You can say that again, pal. The movie does have one scene where we see Fleck try comedy on stage. And upon seeing a clip of his performance, Robert De Niro's talk show host, Murray Franklin, makes fun of him for not being funny. Yet we don't hear any of Fleck's actual jokes. Since Todd Phillips has stirred some controversy by saying he can't make comedies anymore because everyone is afraid to offend in this climate of heightened sensitivity, couldn't he have addressed that in Joker? What if Arthur's style or humor was too offensive or went over the audience's head? We're basically shown that Fleck has no idea how to be funny. Just copying the mannerisms of someone on TV isn't nearly enough. And a key component to comedy is connecting with people giving voice to their observations and gripes. Arthur is far too detached to be able to do that. What if Arthur was resentful because he didn't achieve stardom, or even some level of recognition? What if he was insanely jealous of a fellow comedian whom he didn't think was any good? What if that other comedian had been Joker's first victim, rather than some Wall Street-type assholes on the subway? And what if Arthur had figured out how to be funny and became a star once he adopted his Joker persona and stopped trying to please everyone. Wouldn't that have been more demented? More warped? 
more scary for how little sense it made? What could Joaquin Phoenix have done with that? In some comic book interpretations, the Joker is motivated by jealousy when he feels Batman isn't giving him enough attention. Or he truly comes alive when he sees a figure as theatrical and dressing like a bat as he aspires to be. Since this movie is an effort to tell a Joker story without depending on Batman, though allusions still have to be made in the script, that wouldn't have worked here. It's not the story Phillips wanted to tell. And there is no one definitive approach to the Joker. It's one of the many aspects that makes him such a compelling character. There are so many different stories that can be told. Like, I don't agree with Quentin Tarantino's take on Superman in Kill Bill Volume 2. To me, Clark Kent isn't a persona with which Superman comments on how he views us as timid and bumbling. Clark Kent is how Superman connects with the people he helps and protects. What Kent wears, the glasses, the business suit, that's the costume. That's the costume Superman wears to blend in with us. Clark Kent is how Superman views us. And what are the characteristics of Clark Kent? He's weak. He's unsure of himself. He's a coward. Clark Kent is Superman's critique on the whole human race. But I love that Tarantino's view of Superman exists because it provides a different way to think of the character. Who's to say whether he's right or wrong? Okay, I think I've gotten all of that out of my head now. Maybe another filmmaker will create a different take on the Joker someday, probably sooner than we think. The version Phillips and Phoenix give us isn't the final word on the character, and I doubt either of them would want it that way. So what did you think of Joker? Are we all thinking about it way too much? What would you have liked to see, or did this interpretation totally work for you? Send over your thoughts to thepodcasts at gmail.com or on Twitter at thepodcasts and give us something to share. Let's take a quick break so I can ask you to please subscribe to the podcast on Apple Podcasts. You might have to search under my name, Ian Castleberry, C-A-S-S-E-L-B-E-R-R-Y, until we get a few more shows in our archive. Also, please leave a rating, or even better, a review if you're so inspired. We can use the signal boost in that big Apple Podcast space. Any feedback you can offer is very much appreciated, and I don't take that time or effort for granted. The podcast is also available for listening, downloads, and subscriptions on Spotify, Stitcher, Google Play, Overcast, iHeartRadio, and there's something called Himalaya now. I'll try to get on that if you use it. Oh, and tune in. Being on tune in means you should be able to listen to this on Amazon Echo, but Alexa can't quite pick up the difference between podcasts and podcast. Yeah, maybe I should have picked a different name. But you can still find us on the TuneIn app and website if that's how you like to listen to your podcasts. Thank you for listening and downloading. All right, let's do some baseball talk, courtesy of my Monday appearance on Asheville's Y Sports Radio. We were on the air while two MLB divisional playoff games were being played. The Houston Astros, Tampa Bay Rays Game 3, and the Atlanta Braves, St. Louis Cardinals Game 4. So some of our discussion no longer applies. But hopefully you'll enjoy it anyway.
Right now we're talking a little baseball. Actually, we're talking a lot of baseball right now. Let's get more with Ian Castleberry joining the Wise Guys for our Major League Baseball update on this Monday. And uh, it's all presented by Vistanet Telecommunications. Ian, how are you, lad? I'm doing great. How are you? Hey, can't complain, man. We got a few things to get to. Uh, let's start first. So even though the uh, the Braves are down three to one to the Cardinals, um, Cardinals a little concern out of the bullpen as as the Braves rock St. Louis closer Carlos Martinez for the win yesterday. Uh, is Card Cards manager Mike Schilt sticking with his reliever despite the rough outing, Ian? Mike Schilt is non-committal uh, to Carlos Martinez uh, after. Uh, he gave up three runs yesterday. Uh, he, he His exact quote, I believe, when asked about Carlos Martinez pitching in Game 4, quote, there will be a discussion, end quote. So not exactly a uh, ringing endorsement. I think Shield is concerned about Martinez's uh, state of mind. You know, how how will he respond or bounce back to uh, to blowing a game, to giving up three runs in that ninth inning? I think there's also some concern that the Braves have gotten in Martinez's head a little bit, particularly Ronald Acuna uh, with bat flips and walking down to first base and uh, uh, Carlos Martinez, you know, being the fun police, thinks uh, yeah. that the Braves and, and Acuna are trying to show him up. And I think uh, Yadier Molina and Mike Schilt have both had to calm Martinez down a little bit. And he sometimes seems a little bit more concerned with getting a little bit of uh, payback in terms of hitting mm. Acuna uh, rather than getting him out. Yeah, that may work uh, okay in the regular season, but not in the playoffs. Not now, exactly. dude. Uh, but the Cards, again, hold a 3-1 lead at the end of four over the Braves. Uh, back-to-back home runs, by the way, uh, for uh, the Cardinals, Paul Goldschmidt, Mar- uh, Marcelo Zuna, off of Dallas Keuchel. I thought this was interesting, a stat heading into this game, where, where Keuchel, his ERA, Ian, appearing in a game on three days rest, uh, was 10.13, over 10, uh, 10.13 ERA coming into the day. That did not get any better, uh, with the back to back home run. So the Braves certainly in a battle right now, uh, with the Cardinals. And, and Ian, my next question was going to be which AALS or ALDS, excuse me, uh, which team down two nothing would have a better chance of winning their series? Now, as I was writing, you know, getting this up this morning, <laughs> I wasn't thinking about, God, they're starting this raised Astros game at one o'clock, which means like 10 people showed up today, uh, for that game in Florida. But they're up 10 to three at this point. The Rays are on their way. It's the top of the ninth. So we'll assume they get the win there, uh, to go, um, they're now down two to one. But Ian, if, if this game had, had not been played yet, if it was going to be played tonight, would it be the, the Rays against the Astros or would it be Minnesota against the Yanks as the team that would have the best chance of coming down from that, coming back, excuse me, from that 2-0 deficit? Yeah, I certainly would have liked the, the Twins chances, uh, going, uh, to target field and, and the Yankees uh, pitching uh, Luis Severino in game three uh, to be announced uh, in game four. Uh, will the Yankees come back with James Paxson or maybe go with J.A. Happ? Compare that to the Astros who, uh, you know, were <laughs> with Zach Grinke and then maybe Justin Verlander following up. Uh, you would have liked uh, the Astros' chances with Zach Grinke, but the Rays pounded him. Six runs, five hits uh, in less than four innings. Uh, meanwhile, Charlie Morton continuing to pitch uh, very well against his former team, uh, the Astros, in the postseason. Uh, that's always interesting to see. Like, you know, who who has the better leverage there? You know, is it more of the pitcher's advantage in facing his former team, or is it the the, the lineup? You know, are they more familiar with the pitcher? But clearly, uh, Morton seems to have this advantage here in that matchup against the Astros. Uh, I still like the Twins. 
the chances of, of at least putting up a fight in the ALDS, but um, you know, I think we've thought for even going back to uh, late August, early September, that we were looking uh, at a Yankees Astro uh, ALCS, and it certainly still looks that way. Yeah, Charlie Morton today, five innings pitched, uh, gave, gave up just a run on three hits and uh, struck out nine. I mean, that is impressive. On the flip side, Zach Greinke, uh, man, he got hammered by the race. He gave up three home runs, uh, six runs, uh, six of those all earned, by the way, we should point out, in just 3.2 yeah. innings. So he gets roped uh, by Tampa Bay. Should that be any concern for uh, for, for the Astros? Uh, possibly. I mean, Grinke has pitched well in the postseason before. Uh, with, unfortunately, I did not see uh, how Grinky uh, was looking on the mound. Uh, I, I would assume it does have to be a concern, but was it that he just didn't have his stuff or, or that the uh, uh, Rays uh, had his number? Uh, I would still think that uh, when his turn comes back up uh, in the rotation, uh, Grinky, uh, the Astros will still go with Zach Grinky. Sure. I mean, I, I, I imagine they've got to leave him in there, but it's like, oh boy, I mean, he got roped it in again. It just could be one bad game. Pitchers, even the best pitchers have that. And, you know, he's one of the better ones for sure. Is Ian Castleberry joining the Wise Guys for a Major League Baseball update presented by uh, Andrea and Greg at Vistanet Telecommunications. All right, um, Ian, Cubs are going to be interviewing Joe Girardi. Uh, David Ross, both former Cubby catchers, by the way, and first base coach Will Venable. All right, uh, which one of these names would be, in your op- in your opinion, the best option for Theo Epstein? I mean, it looks like a no-brainer. It's Joe. It's Joe Girardi, right? He's got a uh, managerial experience uh, with the Marlins uh, and the Yankees. Won a World Series so with the Yankees. Uh, David Ross, Will Venable, uh, neither has managerial experience. Uh, Will Venable, uh, kind of a curious candidate there, but he did work uh, in the Padres front office when uh, current Cubs general manager Jed Hoyer uh, was working in San Diego. So they hired Venable to be the first base coach. Uh, he does have uh, some experience in the front office uh, now with the coaching staff, but uh, if Theo Epstein wants somebody who's a, a better communicator uh, with the players, which I think was one of the knocks against Joe Girardi, especially toward the end of his Yankees tenure, and somebody who's a little more in line with uh, what the front office wants to do, as opposed to uh, Joe Girardi, who I think uh, still has a little bit of that old school, you know, uh, you know, you give me the players, I manage them on the field sort of outlook. I think uh, David Ross and Will Venable are probably a better fit for what Epstein is looking for. Uh, you know, we continue to hear that the job is David Ross's if he wants it, but just in terms of resumes, when you look at those three candidates that you mentioned. Joe Girardi looks far and away to be the best choice. And that's what I want to follow up with. Do you think Theo Epstein is the type of guy? I mean, it seems like Joe Madden just kind of did his own thing. And is that something Theo is, is, is cool with? Or you think maybe the next manager coming in, maybe someone like a David Ross or, or Will Venable or anyone else who they may interview that doesn't have the experience that Joe Girardi has that may be inclined to listen to Theo Epstein? Yeah, I mean, uh, Theo Epstein has had plenty of experience hiring managers. You know, he's he hired Grady Little and Terry Francona in Boston. So I think he he's fine with managers who kind of do their own thing. Uh, but the the trend, as we're seeing, is more toward uh, managers who are uh, an extension of the front office. And I think the tendency, whenever you ever make a change, is to go with kind of the opposite of what you had before. So if Epstein's looking for somebody who's a little bit more uh, of a team player, 
uh, with a front office and going with whatever analytics uh, and so forth uh, with strategy that the front office is providing, then I think uh, he probably would uh, uh, prefer somebody who's more in line with that rather than uh, someone with a little more experience and maybe more willing to do his own thing like uh, Joe Girardi. You know, David Ross, former catchers, as I'd mentioned, and, you know, those guys make great managers because they see the whole field. They just, you know, they have to be responsible for so much on the field, especially situational um, uh, things. And and what I find interesting is David Ross is really well-liked. I think Cubs fans would like that. But for you, Ian, the fact that he has absolutely no managerial experience, does that matter being as smart a player as he was during his playing days? Um, I don't think it matters as much as uh, we once may have believed. Uh, I think also, as you point out, being a catcher, he's already been sort of a manager uh, on the field and an important clubhouse leader, not just with the Cubs, but going back to his days with the Red Sox uh, and the Braves. Uh, I think there's a reason that those players uh, tend to make good managers. I guess I would be a little bit concerned if he's a a little bit too tight and friendly with with some of his uh, former teammates. You know, it's different when you're the boss. And can he do that? Or does he automatically command the respect uh, from guys like Anthony Rizzo and and Chris Bryant? And and it won't be an issue as long as he's a a good communicator. Uh, This is going to be just intriguing to see where this goes. And, and, um, you know, are there any other names on Epstein's list uh, outside of those three? got to think they may be going after at least interviewing a few more. Yeah, there is at least one more. Uh, Theo Epstein alluded to uh, a candidate that he can't talk to yet because he's involved in the postseason. And uh, most people believe that it's Astros bench coach Joe Espada, who if he does not get the Cubs job, he is going to get uh, one of the seven managerial uh, jobs that are currently open. Uh, that The Mets, I think, would love to have him. Uh, if the Cubs don't hire him. But uh, Joe Espada, uh, very well regarded, uh, currently the bench coach uh, for the Astros and, and the last uh, Astros bench coach uh, to be hired as a major league manager. Uh, Joey Cora went on to win the World Series. Uh, Alex Cora, excuse me, went on to win the World Series. So uh, a pretty good tra- track record there. But Espada has uh, plenty of experience. Uh, his specialty is infield defense. He's bilingual a good communicator. Um, he was a possible candidate for the New York Yankees managerial position when Joe Girardi uh, was let go, but he went to uh, join the Houston Astros coaching staff uh, before the Yankees uh, had, had a chance to talk to him. But with the Yankees, he was a third base coach. He also has front office experience. He'd been a, a special assistant to Brian Cashman. Uh, no managerial experience for Joe Espada except uh, three seasons in winter ball. So that might be the one red flag on his resume. But uh, Joe Espada, uh, a little bit surprising that he didn't get a manager's job uh, last year. But, uh, again, he is somebody that the Cubs will consider, and he will be a major league manager next season. And Joe Madden interviewing today uh, with the Angels. So who knows? Maybe if it goes well, uh, we will be getting an announcement there that the Angels have hired Joe Madden. Apparently he's their guy. We'll see how the interview goes. Uh, Ian, before we let you go, Ian Castleberry presented by Vistanet Telecommunications. Derek Cole dominant uh, with 15 Ks in the Astros game to win before they got blown out today in game three. But, you know, that's the third most strikeouts in postseason history. And Ian, what more can you tell us about a guy that would be an ace on many teams that do not have a guy named Justin Verlander on their staff. Yeah, he absolutely would be ace on, on, on any other team. 15 strikeouts, as you mentioned, a combined 35 and 10, a uh, 2.6 ERA uh, in his two seasons uh, with the Astros. But he is a free agent at the end of the season. 
Uh, I think the Astros expect to lose him. Uh, you know, if uh, a top pitcher salary in free agency nowadays is thirty million, uh, upwards of thirty million per season, uh, the Astros probably don't want to pay that. That is a reason why they got Zach Greinke, not just to help them this season uh, in going for the World Series, but uh, to, to cover that spot in the starting rotation uh, if they lose uh, Garrett Cole, as expected. But at twenty-nine years old. Free agent after the season. He's a Southern California native and pitched uh, in college at UCLA. There is some thought. You, know, you mentioned the Angels interviewing uh, Joe Madden. Uh, if they get Joe Madden and they decide to, you know, really uh, go for it and, and build a better team around Mike Trout, that uh, Garrett Cole could be the Angels' top free agent target this offseason. Ooh, we'll see where it goes. Nice. Uh, you've been informed. Ian Castleberry with the Wise Guys. Uh, back at it Wednesday with uh, more Major League Baseball headlines. Always appreciate you, buddy. Have a great rest of the day. Outstanding. Thank you, Pat. Always, man. Thank you. Uh, Ian Castleberry with the Wise Guys. Uh, baseball update presented uh, by uh, Andrea and Greg at Vistanet Telecommunications. At the very least, this segment provided the latest example of me being terrible at baseball playoff predictions. The Minnesota Twins had a better chance of making a competitive series versus the New York Yankees? Nope. If there's one thing we can all bet on in baseball, it's that the Twins will lose to the Yankees in the postseason. Bank it. But all of this is an appetizer to the great meal we hopefully get with an Astros-Yankees American League Championship Series anyway. The sooner we get there, the better. The National League is where the drama is, with both divisional series going to a decisive Game 5. I'm rooting for the Nationals to beat the Dodgers and hope the Braves beat the Cardinals. Either way, though, let's just see some good games. Before we close this out, I want to talk a bit about what's happening at Sports Illustrated. On Friday, the Maven Incorporated which is licensing the Sports Illustrated brand as part of its deal with the Meredith Corporation and the Authentic Brands Group, made major cuts at the publication, laying off 40% of the editorial staff. I've seen reports that 25% of the overall staff is being let go. Those writers and editors will be replaced by contractors and freelancers, surely low-paid, who will aggregate and parrot news rather than do actual reporting or write anything with depth or insight. Unfortunately, Sports Illustrated will by and large become just like most of the styrofoam peanuts filling up the internet nowadays, churning out content that gets no editing or oversight to generate traffic numbers for an easy profit. Wow. A whole school for how to intern at a clickbait aggregator. (laughs) Yeah. Ten reasons why you're never getting paid. (laughs) I won't say it'll all be bad writing. Hell, I've done my share of writing under such circumstances. And a good chunk of it was probably subpar. Some of it might even be decent. And many of those writers will be credentialed, getting access. But there won't be any incentive for the work to be good. I know all too well about editing bad work from writers who never try to get better because they're only required to slap together an article with no care given to quality or improvement, or even coherent sentences. It's enough to simply exist, fill space, and get clicks. It's all about the hits. Enough has been said and written about the death of a once great institution. Sports Illustrated at its best thrived in an era which no longer exists. And it can only blame itself for failing to adapt, to be reactionary rather than visionary in gaining a foothold in current media. Sports Illustrated was known for strong reporting and long-form writing. 
there's still a place for those, even when so many of us want quick hits we can read on our phones. But SI tried to keep up with the crowd rather than feature what made it stand out. Even if the magazine died, the brand and what it stood for could have still existed. Those long-form stories would make great podcasts and documentaries. The great photography SI was known for could have been used to create compelling interactive features online. The name is Sports Illustrated, so illustrate the games, stories, and people we find so compelling. Give us what we can't find at dozens of other sites. Instead, SI's website was a mess of ads and pop-ups cluttered with stories that could be read elsewhere, or everywhere, a product that made readers want to go someplace else. And there are still places for strong reporting and in-depth sports writing online. ESPN, The Athletic, The Ringer, Yahoo, Bleacher Report, Deadspin, CBS, and CBS to name a few. And it exists within larger outlets like the New York Times, Washington Post, and Wall Street Journal, and still at some local newspapers and magazines. But there aren't many left. Even though it doesn't feel like there's enough time to read all of the good stuff, most of us get to it eventually, especially if that content circulates through social media and blogs. Hopefully there will still be room for that kind of work above the filler, even if there's less of it at Sports Illustrated. Look, I love magazines. I enjoyed when I worked for one, and I hope I get to again someday. It breaks my heart that fewer of them are surviving. But publications like The New Yorker, Vanity Fair, and New York magazines have figured out a successful model merging print and online products and getting readers to pay for subscriptions. It's sad that an institution like Sports Illustrated couldn't do that for itself once Time Life sold it off to the Meredith Corporation. The biggest mistake media probably made long ago is catering to the idea that a good product should be available for free. Hey, I'm as guilty of lamenting and trying to avoid paywalls as anyone, but I've realized how counterproductive and destructive that is in recent years, and I've always paid for outlets whose work I enjoy and respect, like The Times, Post, Journal, Slate, Salon, and many others. But that appears to be changing to some extent as it becomes increasingly clear that good writing and editing requires financial resources, whether it's attracting quality talent, paying for travel, keeping the overall product current and appealing, or even legal protection when it's required. Is that legal? What is it you think we do here for a living, kid? Readers seem to be more accepting of paying for their content if it's worth the expense or something they really want. Yet that's where the issue lies, isn't it? That content has to be worth paying for, and so often it's not. Sports Illustrated is now going to travel down that road more purposefully than ever before. And that's the podcast. We're also on Instagram at the podcast, that's P-O-D-C-A-S-S, or you can reach out to me personally on Twitter at Ian Cass. Any feedback, good or bad, is always appreciated. More so when it's good, but seriously, I want to get better, and if you can help me get there, that'll be great. Once again, we've avoided the TV talk I keep wanting to do. I'll aim for Friday's show to have more of that, since we'll have one fewer radio segment. Remember, the Wise Guys show takes some time off every other week, so Pat can get the rest he needs after treatment. Batwoman has been added to the superhero TV mix. Mr. Robot is back for its final season. Season 2 of Succession is about to wrap up, 
and Watchmen will take its place on HBO's schedule. Fox's Prodigal Son was just picked up for a full season. That series has shown some promise, so maybe it'll get a chance to succeed, even on Fox. What are you watching? We'll get into it soon. Until then, be good and take proper care of yourself. Are you getting the sleep you need? That's important, man. (laughs) 